The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, I am Josh Levine, Slate's national editor and the author of The Queen. This is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of November 25th, 2019. Happy Thanksgiving to one and all, including my friend Stefan Fatsis, who is out this week. In his absence, I'm going to ditch the usual hang-up format and treat you all to a long conversation with John Hollinger. John left the basketball nerd media to become a high-ranking executive with the Memphis Grizzlies. He has now returned to the basketball nerd media, where he is subjected to chit-chat by the likes of me. He writes for The Athletic. He podcasts. We'll get to him in a second. Um, but before we get to that, I wanted to let you know about our live show in Washington, D.C. next week. It is at the Hamilton Live. It's an amazing venue downtown in D.C. If you've never been, you must go. We're going to be joined by some of our favorite journalists, folks you've heard on this program before, Gene Demby, Lindsey Gibbs, Dave McKenna. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets and information. We would love to see you there. It is December the 3rd, Tuesday night in Washington, D.C. at the Hamilton, slate.com slash live. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. My guest today is a senior NBA columnist for The Athletic. He also does a weekly podcast with Nate Duncan. It is called The Hollinger and Duncan NBA Show. Until earlier this year, he was a senior executive with the Memphis Grizzlies. And before that, he was one of the first and most prominent basketball sabermetricians, launching the website Alley Oop, writing the annual pro basketball prospectus books, and then joining up with SI.com and then ESPN.com, John Hollinger. Thank you for joining me today. Hey, thanks for having me. So I wanted to start out before we get into that long and interesting bio that I just ran through with something newsy, and that something slash someone is Luka Doncic. He had 41 points, 10 assists, and six rebounds against the Rockets on Sunday night. A few days before that, he scored 35 points and got a triple-double in just 25 minutes. This dude is 20 years old. He's led the Mavericks to an 11-5 and record, and he leads the league in player efficiency rating PER the statistic you invented. Luka Doncic, man, he's incredible. It's been amazing to watch the story for me of the NBA season so far. Yeah, I mean, it is incredible. You know, at his age, like you said, he's only 20 and he's pretty close to averaging a triple-double. 30.6 points, 10.1 rebounds, 9.8 assists. So just a phenomenal start to his season. And what's so interesting is that in his draft year when he came out, he was kind of looked at as more of the finished product. Whereas some of the other players who were available in the top half of that lottery were seen more as guys four or five years down the road who maybe could possibly have more ceiling. And what's happened instead is he's made a phenomenal improvement just from his rookie year to his second year. Whereas last year he was a pretty good player. He's now become one of the best players in the league and an MVP candidate for sure. And uh, it's really vaulted Dallas into an echelon that they didn't expect to be in this quickly. He's a guy who his greatness is not subtle. (laughs) If you watch him play, the ability that he has to 
do the kind of Harden-esque step back threes. And also just to get into the lane and find teammates, he's obviously very different from LeBron James, but his ability as a bigger guy to get into the lane, find teammates for three-point shots is LeBron-esque in some ways and extremely rare. And he's just such a fun player to watch too. Yeah, I mean, he's a brilliant passer and he's able to move defenders with his eyes and and throw some passes where you're kind of rewinding the tape and going, wow, how did, how did he do that? And he's kind of always had that in his game where I think he's really refined his game is his ability to get places off the dribble, which he uh, even though he played as a as a point guard, even in Spain, he he wasn't as crafty or as or as nimble getting where he wanted to go off the bounce. And that limited him a little bit. And then just as a finisher in the paint, he's added a variety of floaters and little head fakes and stuff. And and that's really made him much more lethal as well. I remember there was, uh, I might not get this exactly right, but one of the first times the Warriors played the Mavs in Luka's rookie year, Draymond Green saying, this guy's going to be a problem. Actually, he already is a problem. Like he seems to have very quickly gotten the respect of his NBA peers. Yeah, I mean, I think he just has a pretty advanced basketball IQ. And so the veterans that he plays against really respect that. And so you mentioned the draft, the Grizzlies, you were still with them at the time. Yeah. Drafted Jaron Jackson Jr. right after Luka Doncic. Would you have taken Luka if he was available? I don't want to give away too much here. We would have been happy with either of them. And uh, in the position we were in, it wasn't because we already were down a future first round pick. It wasn't really plausible for us to trade up. So we were going to end up taking what the draft gave us at four. It looked for a while like we were going to end up with Luca, you know, because it seemed like Atlanta was going to take Jaron Jackson number three. And then they worked out the trade with Dallas to move down to five and take Trey Young instead. So, I mean, Jaron had a really good rookie year. He's still really young. And really young physically, too, where he's more growing into his body. And so I I think, you know, when he gets into his mid-20s, that's when you're really going to see the best from him. But we'll see how it goes there. These are, like, really small things that affect the future of NBA franchises because the Grizzlies obviously would have had a different, you know, path if Luka Doncic was on the team rather than Jaron Jackson Jr. and now John Morant. These are the things that determine championships. They determine, you know, coaches. Yeah. Yeah. They determine they determine so much just who goes three and who goes four. Well, you know, Luka Doncic might have cost us John Morant too. That's very <laughs> so. true. The trade between the Hawks and the Mavericks, but for Doncic and and Trey Young. Was that something that surprised you when that happened? Was that I don't remember. Was that like a thing that people in the league were talking about as a possibility? I mean, we knew Dallas liked Doncic quite a bit. So I guess it didn't surprise us that they would try to trade up. It surprised us a little that Atlanta traded down just because the perception of that draft was that there were three real super talents and that there were some good players after that, but probably quite, not quite on the same level. Now, Trey Young has turned out to be, I think, better than people initially thought. So that's taken some of the sting off of that. But I, I still think you'd rather have Luka probably than Trey Young plus Cam Reddish, yeah. who's the player they eventually got with the pick from Dallas. I think that is definitely right, even though Trey Young has been really, really good this year. All right, let's rewind to how you got your start. Were you a Bill James reader as a kid? Were you a basketball? Oh my God, yes. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, that was what started everything, was me reading all the Bill James books when I was a teenager. 
And I just devoured those things. And uh, eventually I got to the point where I was a big basketball fan and basketball player at the time. So I started messing around with basketball stats to see what could be done on that front because it felt very primitive to me that we just had kind of points per game and field goal percentage. And you couldn't really they didn't really get at the essence of who was good and who wasn't. Have you thought about, as you've been doing this now for a long time, why that was, like why history developed that way, that baseball would have had this sort of statistical revolution before basketball and other sports? Well, I mean, baseball was probably the best setup for it, where it's just a series of one-on-one batter-pitcher confrontations, and then it just had this history with its own statistics that was so much richer than, than basketball. I mean, basketball, they didn't even start keeping track of block shots till the 70s. So baseball, you go back to 1900 and you have complete box scores of every single game. I mean, there was just a tradition in baseball that didn't exist in basketball of record keeping that made it far more right for this type of thing. That's weird that they wouldn't have tracked block shots. It seems very easy <laughs> to track. And it's not like the numbers get very high. Absolutely. There was just, yeah, I mean, there just wasn't a lot of thought to put into the statistical record of the game beyond just very basic nuts and bolts. And so is this in like the 90s? Like when did you start really kind of looking at this stuff seriously and trying to figure out where you could contribute? Yeah, so this would be as we got into the 90s, yeah, and as I, you know, became an actual adult. um, (laughs) Then uh, I created my own website in 1995, and that probably took it to another level where I really started getting very deep into the weeds on statistical methods with, with basketball and ways of rating players. And that's where player efficiency rating came from. So let's indulge in a little bit of back in my day uh, here. Like, how would you actually work with the stats and how would you get them back then? Like, this was pre basketball <laughs> reference. Uh, yeah. What did you do? There was a, no, there, there was a site that had them, though. It was just a random guy who posted them. The, the website's still up there, dougstats.com. I mean, that's what I used originally. Can we shout out that guy? His name is Doug? Yeah, his name is Doug. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> so I would take take those stats and I would just dump them into Excel and, and start playing. And who were some of your peers at that point or who did you really look to for guidance uh, or collaboration? There wasn't a whole lot of guidance or collaboration. <laughs> Just you and Doug, the silent partner. Was, yeah, I mean, I, you know, the Doug stats page. And then, uh, you know, eventually after a couple of years, a couple of uh, other interested people, you know, guys like Dean Oliver and Kevin Pelton. I mean, the bulletin board formed called APBR Metrics, which was essentially a basketball statistics discussion group. So a lot of useful things came from that. But that probably I'm probably getting five years later, at least by then. That was like early 2000s. All right. So explain player efficiency rating, where it came from and what you were hoping to achieve with it. What I was hoping to achieve was something similar to OPS in baseball, where you could look at one number and at least get an idea of how effective somebody was. And maybe it wouldn't tell you everything, but it would tell you a lot more than points per game or a field goal percentage would. And I wanted it to be immediately accessible in people's minds what what a certain number meant. And that's why I set the league average to 15, because I figured if somebody averaged 15 points a game, you'd think, oh, yeah, he's all right. <laughs> and and just the way the scale worked out that the best ratings would end up in the high 20s and low 30s was perfect, because that's where kind of the leaders in scoring would end up. So I, I just thought it mapped out really well 
to what was already calibrated in people's heads. Is it fair to say that around this time, kind of similar to baseball, how there could be a guy who had 300, but kind of an empty 300, just all singles might have been overrated, that there were players who would score, you know, 15 or 20 on like a super low field goal percentage volume shooter. And and in a ton of minutes. I think I think people really didn't understand the impact of of minutes and that looking at things per minute was a much more useful way to evaluate players. And I think that really was probably the biggest thing that that PR really uncovered was that some of these players who were had decent scoring rates but were playing an insane number of minutes probably weren't as good as you thought. Uh, Latrell Sprewell would be a perfect example. And on the other hand, you had these players who were coming up at the time, like I'll, I'll say Andre Kirilenko was one guy I know who came up, where it was the opposite, where he wasn't playing a ton of minutes. But once you realize how much he stuffed the stat sheet in those minutes, it was like, okay, this guy's really good. And he obviously eventually became an all-star player. Would people yell at you about Latrell Sprewell and how he was awesome and you were dumb? Figuratively, I mean, they would they would yell in, e- in their emails. But that was the guy who you kind of pushed down in the rankings. Well, that... yeah, uh, Antoine Walker was probably the biggest magnet. Oh yeah, Antoine Walker because people made a big deal out of him, and he had a good scoring average, and he would take a ton of threes, and some of them would go in, and he would do the shimmy and whatnot. He was ahead of his time as a volume three point shooter. Come on, yeah, yeah, he like he was and he wasn't right because he was taking them from everywhere. He just wasn't making them from a whole lot of spaces. So yeah, really interesting debate about what Antoine Walker would be in the modern NBA. Yeah, that's really interesting because you do actually have to make some of the three-pointers that you take. It isn't just about about taking them. Yeah, it's not just about getting them up. But, you know, one thing that's really, really different now, as opposed to in the 90s, it's not just the teams are more savvy and aware about the value, the mathematical importance of taking threes. It's that players can train for it. And so if maybe Antoine Walker had come up 20 years later, I don't know, maybe he would have developed a a better and more consistent shot. Who's to say? Maybe. I mean, he was a, looking at how he shot it and, you know, he wasn't a good free throw shooter either. I, <laughs> I guess I have my doubts. I mean, he came through Kentucky and Rick Pitino. So there was always that mindset of shooting a lot of threes that he came in to the league with. And even his first two college coaches or first two NBA coaches, excuse me, were Pitino and Jim O'Brien. Right. Yeah. I didn't really believe it when I said it. I was just trying to like uh, <laughs> help out Antoine here because I have kind of a soft spot for him. But I think you're probably right. Let's talk through the PR standings right now. Luca is at the top, 33.28. Why would he, if we just like look at his his numbers, be at the top of the uh, PR standings today? Well, I mean, the, the things that stand out, I mean, A, his triple crown stats, right? I mean, just scoring rebounding assisting at an at an incredibly high rate and then the other thing that stands out with him is that he's shooting 62 percent on two pointers wow which is like you you only see that from centers right he's been not only highly productive in terms of just so many possessions end up with the ball in his hands and him making a, a play but highly efficient as well even though his three-point percentage isn't that high draws a lot of fouls shoots 81 percent from the line between those things even though he doesn't contribute a lot and like steals and blocks he's still just 
a massively productive player who's, who's putting up insane stats on the season. Now, I will say Dallas's schedule early has been a little soft, so this will probably come down a little bit, but he's having a historic season either way. Yeah, that kind of efficiency as a 20-year-old. And then you also mentioned his three-point percentage not being that high. You know, we were, we were talking about ceilings earlier to think that there's still so much room for growth for him is kind of <laughs> terrifying. Yeah. I mean, what happens if he becomes a 40% three-point shooter? What do you what do you do with him then, especially at his size? So he's uh, he's going to be a problem for a long time, I think. Be concerned, Draymond Green. The guy who's the most surprising is at number four is Mitchell Robinson. Maybe Avika Zubak at number 10 as well was a guy whose name I wasn't expecting to see there. These are guys who are, are efficient in yeah. lower minutes. Yeah, I mean, I would say with with Mitchell Robinson, I would say, you know, 245 minutes. So you probably don't have quite as much to go on there. He's just been so highly efficient, you know, 74 percent true shooting. I mean, that's that's basically the reason he's ranked as high as he is. And then his his insanely high block shot rate, highest rate of shot blocks in the league by far. The guy I'm always so delighted to see near the top of the PR rankings is Boban, the king of PR. And like when a big guy in particular is putting up like massive efficiency numbers in low minutes. Is that all at all suggestive? Like, oh, they should give this guy more time, or is there gonna are there gonna be diminishing returns if somebody who is efficient in those small number of minutes plays more? So my research has shown that you're you're not gonna see diminishing returns in terms of his production. I mean, the reason he doesn't play more is because just defensively he gives it all back. So one of the areas where PR has a little bit of a blind spot is we know blocks, steals, fouls. It's harder for it to evaluate just generally bad defense. And I think where the modern NBA has changed things is that you can't just be a paint big anymore. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to get out in the perimeter a little bit and do some things in space. And some of these guys, are like Boban is the most glaring example, uh, just get exposed in those situations. I mean, Ennis Cantor is another guy who really struggles on defense. But if you just look at PER, puts up huge, you know, he's a hugely productive player in terms of points and rebounds. So that's one of the things really for bigs, especially, is that there's a defensive component to it that it can't quite capture in the 2019 version of basketball. So as fans who are trying to understand how the game works and also, you know, I'm interested in in numbers and looking at, at these stats, like what would your suggestion be for kind of a statistical diet for a fan of like public facing numbers, assuming that there's no just perfect all in one stat? Like what is yeah. a good combo to look at if you want to see what a guy's contributions are? Yeah. So aside from PER, I would say... Like BPM is good because it's available right on Basketball Reference, so it's it's, it's easily accessible, and it, it does a pretty good job of kind of mapping things that are important to winning to to a player's own production. Usually, we'll get a pretty good idea with that. There's some more complex stuff that's out there that gets deeper into the weeds and is probably a little bit more accurate on some levels. Well, what's the concept uh, behind BPM? Basically, they took what what map they took the stats that map to real plus minus and extrapolate that from a, from a player's own box score production so so that basically they can look at what your what your own statistical production is and say well this is what your real plus minus should be and what's weird is that it ends up being more stable than actual real plus minus which which tends to have uh lots of lots of peaks and valleys from year to year with the same players uh so it was it was a really interesting concept 
and you know it shows a plus minus for for offense and defense uh, for each player. So it's a it's a pretty good uh, conceptual framework behind it. Uh, now there's there's also something a little more advanced called PIPM invented by this guy named Jacob Goldstein, which takes some of the player tracking data that's now available and kind of goes goes to town on that. And uh, so is able to uh, evaluate things at a little bit more deeper level and then come away with ratings for each player. And the other thing that does, which is really neat, is it strips out uh, the luck component. In other words, looking just at – so what a lot of – people started doing in the 2000s originally it was just looking at plus minus like how your team is on the court versus how your team is off the court then they started looking at well that depends on who you play with actually so right. started looking at who the other nine players were on the court and then as they got deeper into it they realized the problem was actually even more complicated and that you have to factor out that there's a major luck component when you're when you're dealing with small samples of minutes uh where uh, you know whether open threes are going in or not, or whether the other team is shooting 90% from the line or 50% from the line while you're in the game, which, you know, you can't defend free throws. That's just luck. And that's the kind of stuff that has tended to even out over time. But when you break this stuff down into smaller minute samples to get kind of five-man units or, or differentiate what this team is with this player on the floor with versus that player on the floor, then you really have to account for it. So it, it gets to be some pretty complex math and and accounting. They've done that with PIPM, so that that's another really interesting metric. All right, I just looked up BPM box plus minus on Basketball Reference, and look who's number one: Luka Doncic. That guy, he's good, no matter what numbers you look at, no matter what statistic. And somebody maybe who is better in box plus minus than PR because it accounts for defense. Who would that be, John? Yeah, so you look at guys like OG Ananobi or Patrick Beverly, uh, who are primarily defensive players for their teams, and and do a really good job of it. And so they maybe don't have the uh, the offensive stats that that would pump up their PER, but they're good players nonetheless. You kind of alluded to um, player tracking data, and I wanted to ask you about just what the biggest differences are from when you started to today, that obviously being a big one. There was nothing like that in the 90s. And also just curious about you know, how when you started, there was maybe less stuff available, but it was more publicly available. Stuff was more kind of public-facing. And now the trend in all of sports has been to make numbers data more proprietary. And so I'm curious if you could kind of talk about that trend as well. Yeah. I mean, the NBA has actually done a pretty good job of, of making it public. And so it's just a question of a lot of the research now has been taken into private hands because a lot of the best analytics people have been hired by teams. Right. So that, that, that's that been probably the biggest communal loss, I would say. The challenge is completely upside down now, though, because 20 years ago when I was doing this, the biggest challenge was getting any kind of data at all. And now the challenge is you have so much data that it's dealing with it and understanding what to do with it and making sense of what, what matters and what doesn't matter. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. 
visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Let's move to your tenure with the Grizzlies. You joined up with the team in 2012. You were at ESPN at the time. How did that come about? Were you looking to join a front office? I wasn't really looking to do it. Like I thought I would just be at ESPN for, you know, however long. And that's just what I, what I, where my mind was. And uh, But I had two different opportunities come up, actually, from two different teams and evaluated that the Grizzlies one was a, was a little better because it was a little more responsibility higher up the food chain and and wouldn't necessarily confine me to the analytics ghetto which is where it seemed like a lot of people were getting hired into and then they kind of disappeared like they went to the gulags so i was wary of that it wasn't really something i was looking for but when the opportunity came up uh i was really excited by it that was actually one of the things i wanted to ask you about is like what do front office titles mean you were the vice president of basketball operations the Grizzlies also had a GM, Chris Wallace. Yeah. So what did you do, and what what was your level? Of I mean, I was I was second in, second in command, basically, right on on the basketball operations side, and that can involve different responsibilities with different teams because, as much as the league projects that they're this big conglomerate, it's really thirty mom and pop shops at the end of the day. So you end up wearing a lot of different hats, regardless of what your role is. But in my case. I was overseeing analytics, obviously, given my background, but I was also out looking at players. I was calling other teams about trades. You're going to practice. You're evaluating your own team. And then there's just kind of the boring stuff that you have to deal with, too, of managing a staff and health and medical side of things. There's just some day-to-day unglamorous stuff that goes into that, too. So it's not quite like managing a fantasy team. Love to hear about the boring stuff that people have to do at their jobs. It was like the big complaint that people had that there are just like too many meetings, just like in any in any job. Or <laughs> we actually did okay on meetings. I think I, I think we actually did not have did not have an overload of meetings. The travel sort of makes it difficult for too many meetings to happen. Actually, because there's the team is on the road half the time. You're going to be on the road some of the time when you're out looking at players or doing different things. Uh, even in even in the off season, the players are scattered. The coaches and trainers are out seeing the players. There's different camps. There's summer league. So the the too many meetings thing actually the the schedule kind of solves that on its own. That's a good thing to know. Maybe yeah. I should join the NBA. <laughs> there you go. When you're <laughs> dealing with other teams for potential trade talks, talking to other executives. Did you find that fun? Was that like stress inducing? Did you feel like you were able to develop good relationships or like you're always assessing whether people are lying to you? No, that actually, that actually was fun. It was pretty easy to develop those uh, relationships. And I think there obviously, there were some guys that I knew from my ESPN career too. So there were some doors that were already kind of open that way. It's uh, a lot of the trading in the league, though, is a little bit relationship driven where, you know, we'd we'd have people in our front office who had relationships with people in other front offices. So they'd be our contact points for that team Um, or the, the people that I was closest to. I would be the contact points for those teams. But that part was kind of fun. The part that was more stressful was dealing with agents and free agency because that was more like you I mean trades you were doing back and forth but at the end of the day you you didn't have to do anything 
And you also presumably were on the phone with them to get something. So that part was a little easier. Free agency was a little more stressful because if the negotiation goes badly, the guy leaves, right? <laughs> so there was more more to lose there. Yeah, and players have more power in the NBA than just because of the smaller rosters and the fact that winning is so driven by a small like class of, of guys who are just better yeah. than everyone else. So um, did you find that a lot of the job was to portray, not just portray, but to create an environment um, in Memphis that players would want to play in, just to, to be kind of player friendly and what every aspect of, of what that phrase means? Yeah, I mean, I think that was there in the background. I mean, certainly we made, you know, a lot of improvements to kind of just things like the player's lounge and the, you know, the kind of player experience uh, in, in the time I was there. But I think the the biggest thing that still attracts players is winning and playing with other good players. And so that obviously still has to be at the forefront. We were fortunate in Memphis, though. I mean, we had four good players who all wanted to be there. And, you know, in a small market, you don't really take that for granted. Uh, so I, th- I think that was kind of a special time because of that. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. So you had Marcus All and Mike Conley, obviously, and then Zach Randolph and Tony Allen and those teams. And they were all there when you got there, right? They were all there when I got there. Yes. And uh, all four of them in the time I was there re-signed with us as unrestricted free agents, um, which it, without much of a fight. And so that, I mean, I think that goes goes to show you that we I mean we didn't deal with some of the stuff that other teams have dealt with in terms of guys trying to push their way out. Yeah, I was actually wondering, you know, your comment there just kind of flipped this on my uh, on on its head because I was going to say like, well, maybe you didn't have a chance to really transform that team because you had those guys locked in and but actually they could have all left and so you did have an opportunity to change or or shift what the um, organization was doing, but there was a mutual decision by the players and the organization to keep everybody together. That was a choice. Yeah, it was a choice. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't much of a choice given our cap situation. I mean, <laughs> the, the once 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 you're over the cap, I mean, you might as well resign your own guys. Basically, no. I mean, probably the biggest direction changing move we made was uh, when I first got there when we traded Rudy Gay because. That took us out of a precarious situation with the luxury tax, but then it also freed up a lot more shots and uh, just time with the basketball for Marcus Gasol and Mike Conley and really allowed them to take a step up. So I was doing my like reading and, and refreshing about those years, and there were reports. Uh, Woj back then was at, at Yahoo wrote a story about how Lionel Hollins confronted you in 2013. Um, and it seemed like he was pissed about the Rudy Gay trade and that there was this kind of tension. And he was a guy who wasn't so analytically inclined. And could you just like kind of talk about that relationship and that tension? I mean, that was a weird situation from the get go because Lionel's contract was expiring and he knew it. And he he still wasn't happy with the previous extension that he got from the from the previous owner. Uh, Robert Parra had just bought the team right before I was hired, which is how I ended up there. And our new team president, uh, Jason Levian, had had to make a decision on what he was going to do there. So <laughs> it, it was just 
I think it was more situational than than anything. <laughs> That's kind of where where that was. So under different circumstances, you and Lionel Hollins could have been BFFs. Right, right. It was, just, but I mean, we we walked into a situation where it was just going to be really difficult no matter what happened, and you know, and then it looked like he was going to kind of leave as a free agent and go to another team, and then the um, especially when the Clippers job went away. There was more tension because then he still wanted to stay in Memphis, but uh, I think our management had kind of moved on a little bit, and so that just created an odd situation all around. But uh, you know, also at the time of that move, especially, I think he was he was probably evaluating it as these moves that are made to the roster are going to affect my sort of coach free agency, right? So there was there was obviously a tension there that we were going to. We knew coming in that we had to trade somebody because the team was way into the luxury tax mm-hmm. uh, and was going to be the next year as well. And so there was almost instant tension because of that. Yeah, and I don't think you know you you guys traded the the wrong guy. That was a, a smart move. And in 2013, you made the Western Conference Finals. Got a little help from Patrick Beverly injuring <laughs> injuring, yes. injuring Russell Westbrook and uh, mm-hmm. a move that that started their years long feud and then uh, ran into the Spurs and the Western Conference Finals, which which ended up as a sweep. What are what are your kind of memories of that 2013 playoff run? Getting to those Western Conference Finals was the kind of pinnacle achievement of that era for the team. Well, I mean, it was the farthest they advanced, but I mean, I think I think our team in 2015 was our best team. Yeah, uh, the the team that was up two one on Golden State. Uh, we just happened to be playing Golden State in the second round. You know, that first year was all such a whirlwind. I came in in the middle of the season, and we just, uh, you know, af- after all the trade stuff happened, we just kind of got every everything together, and and things kind of clicked and and Lionel to his credit put it past him and really got the best out of that team in the in the playoffs and we were fortunate that Russell Westbrook was uh out in the second round certainly because we could just throw everything we had at Kevin Durant and put Tony Allen on him and have help defenders in the right spots because their their secondary guys weren't weren't as threatening and 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 that made our our lives easier but that was a fun run though and the one thing I wonder about with that team, we had always that team had always done really well against Miami. Uh, they they just matched up well against them. They you know we could post up against them, and they didn't have a lot of good post defenders. And we could put t- Tony Allen on LeBron James, and at least prevent him from going totally nuts. And w- so we we had always done well against them, and we would have played them if we got to the finals. But we just had no answer for San Antonio. So this kind of I think speaks to the fact that quote-unquote analytics people get pigeonholed and like a really simplistic take on it is like oh like analytics says you should shoot a lot of threes like this is a team that did not shoot very many threes had just the biggest lineup in the league and was really successful was that something that you kind of knew going in that there were just like a bunch of different ways that you could win in the NBA or was that actually a lesson for you that um you know, flexibility and, you know, that there, there is not just one smart strategy for success. Yeah. I mean, we, we were a bad shooting team. So like shooting a ton of threes didn't make great sense. I, I still wish we had, um, we'd gotten Marcus all out to the three point line earlier than we did because yeah. he, he was a good three point shooter and he could have really spaced things out and, and made things more complicated for other teams. But that just wasn't a thing teams would did with their centers then, you know? And, uh, 
so so I, I I mean de- definitely the way we played was was the way to play with that with that roster. But you, I still wonder if we left a little bit of money on the table, not having one or two guys out beyond the three-point line more often. Yeah, that's interesting. So it wasn't even discussed just because it wasn't done? Like, that is not a thing that teams do. So we will not do that. No, I mean, it, it, it came up with Mark, but not in that first season. It was, it was more a, a little bit, I want to say, a year or two years later that, that it really came up, that, that it was really starting to become more of a trend. And, and we really started discussing it more earnestly. So you mentioned being 2-1 up on the Warriors that first year that the Warriors won mm-hmm. the title. That 2-1 deficit for them has kind of become a part of their lore, um, that that was a moment when they kind of came together and, you know, they had to be tough and, and come back and and beat you guys. And um, I was, uh, Draymond Green comes up again. Like he went out for barbecue in Memphis with Steph Curry, like Memphis barbecue worked against you. That that was the, that was a bonding moment <laughs> yeah. for well, the Warriors. I, I think <laughs> I- injuries worked against us too, unfortunately. Tony Allen couldn't, couldn't move the, the way he had at the beginning of the series because of his hamstring and that really hurt us just because he had done such an amazing job on Clay Thompson. And then the other part people forget is that Mike Conley broke his face the previous round and Beno Udri sprained his ankle the previous round. So game one, we actually played without either of them. We played with uh, Nick Kalathis at our at point guard for us. I want to say he played like 40 minutes um, and we and we lost game one. And then we won games two and three with Mike and Bano back in the lineup, but still not 100%. So if, if they had been full strength, I just wonder how that series would have would have gone. Do you feel like that was some kind of turning point for the franchise? Um, I mean, you're not you're you're kind of in it at the time, and you obviously have no idea how things are going to play out in the future. But and you're not thinking this is our this is our one chance. But in retrospect, was that kind of the the chance? We we all knew at the time that there was a good chance that this was the best team we would have mm. and that we wanted to maximize that. So you guys did not tank, I don't think. Is that fair to say? There was there was well, not any well, there was not any intentional tanking in Memphis. Uh well, we uh <laughs> With the uh, are you talking about the I mean the seventeen eighteen season? Well, that's because Conley got hurt, and like I don't I don't know if the was the intention going into that that season to be bad. No, no, no. We were trying to win, but then once once that stopped being possible, we had a uh, four and twenty nine blitz to the finish line. Well, there you go. I was just saying, I <laughs> I was contra- I was contrasting it with teams that go into a full season with no intention. We, of we never went, very we never different. went into a season with, with the notion of, of tanking. No. That seems very different. And that seems problematic to me. Whereas if circumstances come up as they, as they did in 2017, 2018, and you realistically don't have a chance to like kind of lean into that, like that, that does not yeah. really seem to be an issue for me. Yeah. Well, I, you know, the other part of it that people forget is that, even if there was no draft pick incentive at all, that to use your best veteran players who are under contract for future seasons at a high rate in games that don't matter still isn't very smart. Yeah, that's a good point. Right? Because the only thing that can happen is bad, basically, that they get injured and then are messed up for the next year. So, Because we got we we got flack for some people about what we were doing with Marcus Saul at the end of that year, but... The fact was that he had, you know, he was in his 30s. He'd already had a serious foot injury. 
we, we just didn't want to take on more more risk than than we felt was appropriate. Do you feel like there needs to be uh, there need to be rule changes to make tanking less of an issue in the league, or do you feel like it, it's overblown and it's it's fine the way it is now? I think the issue is less tanking than there are so many games in March that teams just know the game doesn't matter. So whether you say they're tanking or not, they're still disincentivized from really sending out their best players and 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 going all out for it. So you'll see, you know, you'll see the same kind of situation where maybe it's maybe it's not draft considerations, but they're going to play their younger guys and they're going to they're going to sit guys extra long who have any kind of injury to make sure they're okay, especially if it's a veteran player who's under contract for the next season. And so I think I think that's the more insidious level of it rather than just abject like losing on purpose, which I don't I mean, even no, no matter what front offices do, the coaches and players try to win every single game. And that's true for every team in the league. So I, I don't think it exists at, at that level. Mark Cuban was once fined six hundred thousand dollars for talking about tanking on a podcast. But I think you're safe because you no longer work. There, for, uh, I, I think I'm, the I'm beyond their their reach at this point. Yes. That's the thing that that just feels kind of galling as an observer and a fan of the league. It's just the policing, um, the enforcement, so that you can't even have an honest conversation about it, that we all have to pretend that something that we all see with our eyes is happening isn't happening. And I think that erodes trust from fans. I don't know how like huge a deal it, it is, um, but I think that these are like small things that kind of degrade our belief in what we're watching. If If the the league just isn't being honest about what the incentives and disincentives are here. Yeah. I mean, the teams have an incentive to not be totally honest either because they're still trying to sell tickets to the games. Uh, that makes sense. Certainly. And you know, with the Grizzlies now, like I think are in an ideal situation for a team that's rebuilding. And some of this is by design and some is, is happenstance, but having John Morant, the number two pick from this, this past year, Having Jaron Jackson Jr., having Brandon Clark, who's another exciting young player. Like this is a team yeah. that's not going to have, it's not going to make the playoffs this year. But um, fans will happily go and and watch watch a losing team because there's promise there and there's exciting uh, talent, um, and you can enjoy them now and also kind of enjoy imagining them being great in a few years. Yeah, I mean, you can sell hope now because they're. They have the two good young players, and they have uh, the cap sheet is clean going forward. So they have a lot of options to go in different directions, and they'll, you know, they'll. It seems like there's a decent chance they'll have a high pick next year, top six protected. Uh, so there's there's a lot of pieces there to be uh, happy with. They have the future pick from Golden State now too, which is looking like it might. You know, <laughs> be fairly juicy at least, depending on what happens there in the next few years. So they're, they're in a good spot. Makes me sad though, when fans are savvy enough to be like happy about a team's clean cap sheet. Like that, that shouldn't be something that fans are excited about. And that was like when the Knicks traded um, Chris Dapps, and you know, you're like, oh, this the only good player in like the last ten years for this franchise is gone, but we have like all these picks and a clean cap sheet. Like you're trying to sell that to fans. Like we should be excited and happy as fans to watch good players, not, not for cap space. 
Yeah, well, especially, I mean, Knicks fans also thought they were getting Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving out of it, and instead they went to Brooklyn. So that, that was a little bit of a disappointment on July 1st, I think. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, I'm going to continue my conversation with John Hollinger of The Athletic, formerly of the Memphis Grizzlies. In that bonus segment, we're going to talk about a handful of new proposals that are being kicked around. Reseeding the NBA playoffs, an in-season NBA tournament. Would they be good? Will they actually happen? We discuss. If you want to hear that and you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up for just $35 for the first year. You can do that at slate.com slash hangup plus. So we've bounced around chronologically a little bit here, but I wanted to circle back to the Gasol and and Conley deals that ended up breaking up the Grizzlies core. And you were there and a huge part of the discussions that ended up with Marc Gasol going to Toronto. And I think Memphis got a lot of credit for sending him to, you know, a contending team at good team that ended up winning the title, but you were also kind of wanted to send him to Charlotte, right? Yeah. I mean, we, uh, we were talking with Charlotte first, uh, our offer with Toronto was not as uh, strong as the, as the final deal. And then, uh, Charlotte, we, we thought we were going to end up with a, with a pretty good deal with them and it did not get completed for a variety of reasons, I guess. But that, you know, that's how it goes. I mean, you, you talk about deals and talk about deals and 95% of the work you do in the front office ends up not mattering because there's no result because it ends up being a non-deal. So it's, it's just part of the business. And so the deal with, deal with Toronto, once it was uh, sweetened appropriately for us, that became more appealing to be able to get uh, Valanciunas, to be able to get... Uh, DeLon Wright, who they eventually signed and traded and got draft picks out of and then still were able to use his money uh, on Tyus Jones. And then Valanciunas, you know, gives you a starting center who's 10 years younger. So that became the most appealing deal at the time. I mean, that's the easiest way to say it. And we just knew we were at the point. I mean, there was no point in fighting it anymore. I mean, arguably, we probably should have done it two years earlier, just after that, uh, after that series against San Antonio in uh would have been 17 like that that was the point that that was kind of the last stand of grit and grind and you know zach and tony were to a point where they were they were starting to fade because of their age and that that was probably the point where we should have just hit hit the dynamite but we ended up hanging on for another two years and still trying to win and uh so that we took it to the trade deadline of last year and and that's when the mark situation came up so what i'm hearing is grizzlies get a little too much credit for being nice and sending Mark Gazal to Toronto because happily would have sent him to Charlotte if the trade had been a little bit better. Well, yeah, but I mean, if the other thing is, I mean, if that deal had gotten done, then Charlotte makes the playoffs probably and is, is a little bit better situation. And so, you know, it's it's not the Charlotte that we're seeing on the floor this year. It's a Charlotte with Kemba Walker and Marcus Gasol and who knows what else. So Conley gets traded um, in July to the Utah Jazz, and mm-hmm. um, he was kind of Mr. 
Grizzly. And the thing that's been kind of sweet is that both Gasol and Conley have talked about their friendship. And it seems like really genuine, not just a teammate thing, like a friends for life thing. They would sit to next yeah. to each other on the plane. Uh, and that's like a, a thing that's rare in the NBA to have guys, they played together from 2008 to 2019. Could you just say a little bit about them kind of as, as friends and that relationship and how it defined the organization? Yeah. I mean, I think they, you know, it really sprung from, this was before I got there, but when there were trade rumors about Mike being uh, traded, I think in his second season to to Milwaukee, M- Mark kind of sprung into action and and started telling all the reporters and everything like, oh my God, they can't do this. Like, how do I stop this? And I think from that point forward, they kind of always had each other's back. And, you know, just a lot of mutual respect that that they were playing the right way and, and for the right reasons. And it wasn't just about themselves. Uh, they, they were always just so much about the team. And that's what made it so easy for us to have a, a winning team in Memphis was because of those two guys. All right. The other trade that I have to ask you about is the one that was not consummated, which is the great greatest story of the 2019 trade deadline, which is the confusion over which Brooks was going to be traded. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that was actually, that was not at the trade deadline. That was in uh, December, I want to say. Oh, uh, okay. My bad. But the idea was that the Grizzlies were going to trade either Marshawn Brooks or Dylan Brooks. And there was some game of telephone where there was confusion about who, like, so what happened and whose fault was it? Sure. So it's common in a three-team trade to have the team in the middle kind of handle both sides of it. Um, And so we were dealing with Washington and Phoenix was dealing with Washington. Um, And I think the name Brooks came up and I'm not sure Washington realized we had two Brookses. And... (laughs) I don't know so, what that says about which, Washington, but which, okay. Which, I mean, it would all come out in the laundry, except that Phoenix leaked the, leaked the trade while the two of us were still playing a game. So that that's what made it super awkward because we had to tackle the situation right away while our players are still coming back to the locker room. You know, Mar- Marshawn Brooks is on the floor. His mom's in the crowd trying to tell him he's been traded. Like, it was it was just weird. And that. So it was a unfortunate situation uh, that way. But like I said, if it, if it hadn't leaked during the game, and because uh, we we had sort of agreed to what we were going to do with Washington, and then we kind of said, okay, well let's you know let's wrap this up tomorrow morning, and and we'll all get on the phone together. And so because we because we knew we were about, both about to play games, and it 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 never got to the to the next morning. If it had, you know, we would have we would have realized kind of on our own that that there there was the confusion over the names and it all would have died and and nothing would have come of it. So it was that the the trade leaking while we were both playing games was re- was really the thing that made it such a mess. Were the Brookses able to see the humor in it or were they just kind of both pissed? <laughs> I think probably Dylan saw more of the humor in it than Marshawn because Marshawn was the one who was being traded in the deal that we wanted to do. That makes sense. All right, John Hollinger now at the Athletic also does a podcast with Nate Duncan. Everybody should check that out if you want to hear the perspective of one of the great analytical minds in basketball who also has front office experience. We benefited from hearing all of that today. John, thank you so much for taking the time. Hey, thanks for having me.
Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. And now it is time for Afterball, a solo Afterball. Did not want to deprive you of Afterball, despite my uh, inability to pluralize. This week, the Afterball this week will honor Roger Ayers. This is a college basketball referee whose existence I did not know of until Sunday when, uh, you know, over the weekend, Jeff Goodman, the basketball writer, tweeted, the streak now at 19 and counting. For Roger Ayers, the streak being the number of consecutive calendar days in which Roger Ayers had refed a college basketball game. And this is an impressive itinerary. My dude isn't just like refing games, uh, you know, in the same state. This is according to KenPom.com. He was in New York and Madison Square Garden. Then he went to Chapel Hill, West Virginia, New York, Pennsylvania, Virginia, Virginia, Massachusetts, Massachusetts, Tennessee, Indiana, Illinois, Oklahoma, North Carolina, Ohio, Kentucky, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia. And then finally, Roger Ayers was doing uh, the TCU Clemson game on Sunday. And that was in Las Vegas. So hopefully he uh, gets some R&R soon. Roger Ayers. Congratulations on uh, your diehard streak of refing. And the Roger Ayers this week, the solo Roger Ayers, is about an NFL kicker. So I wanted to give you a little taste of Fatsis, even though Fatsis is not here with us. Uh, former NFL kicker Fred Cox died at the age of 80 in Minnesota last week. Cox booted footballs for the Minnesota Vikings for a long time, uh, 1963 to 1977, never for any other NFL team. He played in all four of the Vikings' Super Bowl losses in the 70s, though those losses were not his fault. Uh, He's still 34th all-time in the NFL in points scored, 34th in field goals made. In his playing days, he was known as Fat Freddy, which is rude uh, as a nickname. He's also known as Freddy the Toe, which is not rude, but is a metonym. Uh, But what Cox is best known for is not either of those nicknames. It is the role he played in inventing a toy. As Richard Sandomir recounts in Cox's New York Times obituary, the kicker was approached by a Minnesota entrepreneur who wanted to develop a kid's field goal kicking game for the young fatsises out there. Sandomir writes, Cox suggested that they use a light material like foam rubber. They hired an injection molding company to create a prototype football, which met their expectations. It was light safe and squeezable, an aerodynamic when tossed and kicked. The kids' field goal kicking game never took off. Not enough young fatsises out there. The football was a hit, though. Parker Brothers ended up making a licensing deal for it, which they marketed under the Nerf brand starting in 1972. This was the Nerf football. In a 1989 story in the Pittsburgh Press, Cox said that he, his partner, and their agent got 5% of the wholesale price of each Nerf football sold. That story said sales peaked at eight and a half million in 1979, which means that Fred Cox had a nice little nest egg for himself or a Nerf egg or a Nerf nest. We'll leave that uh, naming as an exercise for, for further study. 
But where I'm going with this naturally is a story that I found on the urban legend aggregator Snopes.com, which reported on the existence of a 2013 Facebook post uh, about a Nerf football. That post reads as follows. Last night, my sister's dog, Jake, was at the community dog park. He was playing and running and having a blast. He picked up a Nerf football that was just laying around. He immediately dropped it and shook his head. He got a drink and played a bit longer. Then all of a sudden, he wanted to go home. When he got home a few moments later, he laid down, and in minutes, he was dead. Snopes' short-form version of this claim, a dog died after picking up a poisoned Nerf football in a dog park. Snopes' assessment of the truth value of this claim, undetermined. They traced the report to an actual dog owner who did a more extensive interview with the website Pet360.com, saying that Jake the dog picked up a small plastic coated pink football and was foaming at the mouth. Snopes then writes, although it is possible that Jake died because the Nerf football he picked up was suffused with some form of poison, either deliberately or accidentally, that claim remains an unproven hypothesis. Uh, No necropsy or toxicology tests were performed on Jake because his body had already been frozen, nor was the Nerf football analyzed for traces of poison. Jake's sudden and unexpected death might have been due to one of a number of alternative explanations, including a heart attack or a bee sting. No matter what, this is a tragedy. Rest in peace, Jake. Rest in peace, Fred Cox, also. And everyone, out of an abundance of caution, do not ingest strange Nerf footballs. That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. Also, buy tickets to our live show in D.C. We would love to see you there. December 3rd at the Hamilton. Slate.com slash live for tickets and information. If you're still here, you also might want even more of this week's Hang Up and Listen. We have a bonus segment for you. And in that bonus segment this week, I talked to John Hollinger about some interesting, possibly wacky new NBA proposals. I think for teams that have real championship aspirations, they probably won't take the cup as seriously. But I do, I do think also for kind of that second tier of teams that 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 might be something they shoot for to, to say, hey, we're you know we're decent, we've done something. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just thirty five dollars for the first year, a great deal. You can sign up at slate.com/hangupplus. I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. 
It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>